This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. In good economic times and bad, fresh out of school, mid-career, in your second or third act, after a layoff or a resignation, following a short stint or a long tenure, we will all find ourselves looking for a job at several points in our lives, which is probably why resume advice has always been among the most popular content on Fast Company. We've all written one, but no one knows if they're getting it right. Should you include an objective statement? Do you really need to keep your resume to one page? How important is it to tailor your resume for each job? Is it okay to admit your graduation date? There are a lot of long-held beliefs about resume do's and don'ts. Fast Company's work-life editors have been covering job hunting for years, so earlier this fall, I teamed up with senior editor Julia Hurst and staff editor AJ Hess to highlight some of the most common resume mistakes, offer advice, and take questions on a LinkedIn audio event. Here is some of what we covered. Hello and welcome to Fast Company's second uh, LinkedIn audio event. I'm Kate Davis. I'm the deputy editor at Fast Company, and I am joined today by AJ Hess and Julia Hurst, who are both work-life editors at Fast Company, and we are going to be talking about resume mistakes, resume essentials, things you need to know about your resume when you're updating it and getting ready for a job hunt or if you just haven't updated your resume in a while. Julia, why don't you kick us off with kind of the most important things to include on a resume? Hi there. I'm excited about this topic. I feel like it's a really good time to be refreshing your resume right now um, as we kind of go into the holiday season. Um, And the thing about resumes is that they're always changing and sort of the norms for them are changing. So it's important to kind of be thinking about what people are putting on now and make sure that yours is up to date. So the first thing I was thinking we should talk about is basically ensuring that you have quantifiable data on your resume, right? So you're not just putting, you know, what job you held and the job title and when you held it, but also, you know, some sort of way for people who are reading your resume to understand, you know, what you achieved in that role. Um, And I think that's especially important if you have a job title that may not be just like immediately understandable, you know, not everybody, you know, in a different industry or a different company will know exactly what it means. So if you can give like very um, quantifiable things that you've achieved. I remember that we wrote an article a while back about counting the number of actual dollar signs and percent signs on your resume, you know, because that is actually going to indicate what you've achieved, right? And so rather than saying, I led a team, you can say how many people were on that team, you know, what did you lead the team to do? Did you raise profit margins by 20%, you know, over a six month period? Like all of that is really helpful and essential information to put on your resume. So that's the first thing I'd say, Kate. That's like such valuable advice. And that was one of the like first and best pieces of resume advice I ever got was one, to use more active verbs, but two, to to quantify things. And it can be hard if you're not in the bottom line driven like sales job because you're like, okay, what dollar amount can I attach to things? But I think everybody has something they can quantify. You kind of touched on it, like how many people were on the team that you led, how many articles did you produce? How many, like you have to give numbers to things to kind of show the volume of what you've done as opposed to just like edited some articles. Like what does that actually mean? You know? I think that's great advice too, just because it speaks a little bit to the way that people review resumes these days, right? So often 
places are inundated with large volumes of resumes. And so being able to add something where reviewers can control fine for a dollar sign, I think actually helps you both out a lot in the long run. Absolutely. I think just keeping it really simple. I mean, and we'll talk about this later in terms of like length of resume, which I know is a hot mm. a hot topic that we all have feeling. Like, it's so controversial. It's yeah. so controversial. But I do think that like you need to provide that level of detail on a resume because yeah, if you know your resume is being looked at probably very briefly by somebody who's reviewing, you know, many, you need to do kind of whatever it takes to make it stand out. That's a good point too, because and I don't know if you know we were going to touch on this later, but it's an old stat that maybe is still true that they say that recruiters spend like seven seconds on a resume. Like you're really they're scanning it, right? And so those like numbers and percent signs and and things like literally stop your eye. Exactly. Yeah. And I think just kind of keeping it simple, people obviously format resumes differently, but you know, I think bullet points are good. I think anything that just kind of provides clarity, allows people to get the information with the least amount of superfluous words, you know, that can be really helpful too. And just, you know, giving yourself a little bit of a, a leg up. One of the polls, the very scientific polls that we did on LinkedIn for this was looking at kind of what are the most important pieces of information to include beyond, obviously, your work history. That, that's what a resume is. And I think 64% of people said special skills or qualifications. Um, 25% said education. And then only 8% said volunteer experience. Um, 2% said social media handles. Obviously, like some of that is a little bit industry-specific. You're trying to get the highlights, right? So work history, special skills, education, those are the sort of basic things that make up the meat of your resume. You said like social media handles is dependent on industry. For our industry, it's so important. Like you better have a social media presence and it's where and it's where you find out a lot more about people. But education, I feel like is another thing that the further you get along in your career, the less relevant it is. You know, if you've been working for 25 years, like where you went to college or what your degree is in, like doesn't really matter as much. Again, it like sort of depends on, on the type of job you're um, <laughs> you're looking to get. I mean, personally, I have two degrees, as you know, Kate, <laughs> that do not relate to journalism. And it, it worked out okay. Um, they're still on my resume, um, and they do come up in, like, interview settings. I remember you asking me about them. They're yeah. a good, like, conversation starter. But, yeah, I mean, that's to that point, there are so many people that end up working in fields that have little or nothing to do with what they went to college for or people who didn't go to college. I mean, we have colleagues that did not go to college that, you know, have a lot of other relevant experience that is so much more important than education. But yes, if you're applying to be a doctor, then you maybe want to have that you went to med school on your resume. And I mean, I think that's probably getting too far afield to get into it. But I think, you know, that's another reason why when you're writing a job description on the other side of things, you should think about, you know, what are your actual requirements? Because, yeah, you might have a wonderful person who has a really solid resume that they can show, you know, all of this other experience, but they might just not have the right degree or, you know, that sort of thing. And so you don't want to rule people out that way. And hopefully on the applicant side, you are not getting ruled out for that reason either. Totally. And to go back to that special skills part, I mean, that's where you put things that you have learned that maybe aren't completely related to your job, but are adjacent or are other skills that you've built. You know, if you were a a chairman of an organization and you did a lot of organizing work or something like that's all really relevant job skills, but isn't necessarily wouldn't find a home in like your work experience. Those are like the important things to put on it. Um, There's, you know, also like a lot of things to leave off because it's really, you know, about editing it down to the most uh, essential information. Um, We did another LinkedIn poll um, before this event asking what uh, should you leave off of your resume 
35% of people said address, 24% said graduation dates, 31 said hobbies, and 11 said objective statement. And I have some feelings about that. Um, the address, yes, 100%. I've long said this. I don't know why people are still putting their mailing addresses on resumes. Like, are you going to write them a letter? Why do you need to know your street address? Just, you know, like waste it. It's not too much space, but it's wasted space. And even now, I mean, there's a lot of controversy on like, should you put your state or where you live. But if you're working remotely and if the job is friendly to a remote candidate, then why bother putting even where you live? Graduation date is, you know, there's again, some kind of controversy around that. Some, there's a school of thought that says you shouldn't put it on because it opens you up to um, age discrimination um, on both ends of the spectrum, right? Like if you are you know, 21 and you just graduated and somebody sees that they could, you know, potentially think that you are too young and inexperienced for the role. Um, if you graduated 40 years ago, they could think you're too old for the role. Things like that, though, you can also kind of suss out from how long you've been in the workforce and your employment dates. Hobbies, people think that you should leave off. But again, I think sometimes, you know, your hobbies give you other skills that are related. Like I like to have like a little teeny thing on there that like shows your personality and shows you as a person. But I was surprised too that only 11% of people said objective statement. I think as I mentioned before, I think objective statements are kind of useless because your objective is to get the job you are applying for. But I don't know, what do you guys think? I would love to defend hobbies for a second. Yeah, yeah. I think they absolutely should be included. One piece of advice I once heard is that you owe it to your coworkers to be interesting. And like hobbies is the easy, safe way to be interesting. And like I want to work with people that I like and I know. And I think I personally, this could be controversial, care more about things like hobbies and maybe even an objective statement. What do you guys think? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. part of the percent that said get rid of the objective statement. for. Yes. Yeah. That's why I was really surprised that only 11 percent of people said that because it does seem like a pointless waste of time <laughs> and hobbies, as you said, AJ, like that's, you know, makes you seem interesting and fun. And, you know, there's one like word of caution there, maybe don't put like that you're part of a politically affiliated group or like some sort of things that depending on your job or your role or your company could like raise some red flags, but like putting that you are a amateur tap dancer will like make you, you know, is like a fun thing to include. Agreed. I want more tap dancers in the workforce, if you ask me. Well, I'm a very bad tap dancer. So <laughs> <laughs> I might Perfect. I might add that to my resume if I'm ever updating it. <laughs> well, AJ, why don't you talk about the next kind of thing to leave off of or change on your resume, which is like buzzwords and jargon and like things like that? Yeah. You know, I think this is one of those things where People really know when you're using just jargon for the sake of using jargon. You know, we spoke a little bit about how applicant reviewers don't have a ton of time to look at applications. One figure I saw was that organizations receive an average of 250 applications per open job. So it makes sense that people want to like buzz up their resume. I have a lot of like empathy for that instinct. We actually had an article uh, by Gwen Morin who said that there are five types of like buzzwords that you like need to ax off of your resume. One was this like category of words like disrupt, utilize, optimize, monetize. And I laughed when I read that list because it is such like 2019 language that I think we can start to see through. And it, it kind of seems like you're over posturing yourself 
She also listed things like superlatives, like world-class and foremost and cutting edge. And she mentioned lazy cliches like team player. My personal least favorite is CEO. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but those are just some of them uh, that, that I think, you know, I understand the intent behind it. But ultimately, I don't think they help as much as you think you do. They do. Yeah, that's a great uh, call out that it kind of dates you, right? It makes you and it maybe like gives you a personality that you don't actually have if you're using or like it makes you sound like you're trying to be a different type of person. If you're saying things like I disrupted, I'm the foremost world class of this, like just speak like a person. Yeah. And let your work speak for itself. You know, like I think we talk about this a lot with interviews, you know, you don't want to come across like you're bragging, you know, so I think the best way to do that is just talk about what you've achieved in very concrete ways, you know, and talk about being part of a team and all of that stuff and avoid, you know, talking about being like a world-class disruptor or something like that. Like, you don't want to set yourself in that position, like, in written form, you know? Years ago, too, there was the trend of, like, nonsense job titles, like SEO ninja. Like, come on. You're not, like, just be a real job. Say your real name and your yeah. real thing that you really did. I think yeah. that also goes to the point I was making earlier about like job title, you know, so often now there are job titles that are so specific to maybe like a certain company or like don't really translate. And I think like if you are in that position where your job title is very specific, even if it's not like a goofy thing, like you need to do the work of explaining what you're actually doing so that people know what yes. that means. That's a good point. And like, even I will say, even with a title like deputy editor, I think somebody once said, is there a sheriff editor? You have to explain like, well, what does that actually mean? Um, and that's the work that your work history and your like description should do. And like the other side of these words are like strong, active power verbs, right? Like increased, reduced, negotiated words that show, like you said, what you do, Julia, rather than kind of telling. Yes. And, and the, the counter to that is that, and this was the, the advice that I got early in my career, is that I sometimes people use really passive words that like it makes them, it doesn't show that they led something. It was like, oh, I was part of a team that, you know, and you want to show teamwork, but you, do, you also want to show that you can take initiative and lead things as well. Julia, you have the next one, uh, tailoring your resume to the job you are applying for. Yes, this is a really important one. And I think it's easy to forget if you're kind of frantically applying to a lot of things, you might just be kind of like sending out your resumes. Um, you know, we've talked a lot um, in work life articles about the importance of, you know, very targeted applications, right? You shouldn't be sending out 500 resumes a day to every open job you see. It's not a good use of time. Which is part of the reason, right, why every open position gets so yes, many resumes right. is because probably 80% of them are just people who blast their irrelevant resume out to as like many jobs as they can. And it's not really a numbers game. Right. We all need to do our, our part to apply to the jobs that, you know, feel interesting genuinely to us and feel like a, a reasonable choice. And then I think as part of that, if you are doing more targeted applications, then it's also important that you are tailoring your resume to the specific job. And that doesn't always mean like totally different resumes for every job, obviously, like your work experience is your work experience. But, you know, say you're like a person who's worked in both PR and media, you know, and you're applying for a PR job, that's going to look different than if you're, you know, applying to work at some specific publication, right? So you need to be thinking about what the job is and then what your relevant experience is. And I think also as you get further in your career, you might find that like certain kind of entry level things might drop off or if you change industries, Sometimes that information can be super relevant, but not always. So I think it's just about being sort of thoughtful about, you know, what is the job I'm applying for? And then what is the part of my work experience that best 
supports the case that I should be chosen for this job. And sort of as part of that, I think, is the, the conversation about chronological order, which we hear all the time, like chronological order is critical. Like, don't be grouping it by like type of thing or something creative. Like you just want to, <laughs> you want to put it in chronological order so that it doesn't look like you're hiding anything. Don't overcomplicate the process, I think I would say. Yeah. And like something to that, if you're talking about, you know, your example of you worked in both PR and journalism and you, you know, want to highlight one for one resume and one for the other, you can still include things chronologically, but maybe for the the journalism jobs, you can just list that you worked there and maybe like one bullet point or two bullet points and then include more bullet points for the, the PR jobs. Yeah. And to be really explicitly clear, I think the way that looks like for a lot of people's these days should be that you should have different versions of your resume on Mm -hmm. file for these different types of jobs that you may want to apply for. Oh, totally. Yeah. So we have an audience question and I want to see, you know, if you guys have any thoughts on this. This person says, how does one represent that they are ready for a quantum leap of sorts, that they have held numerous varied positions and that when taken together suggest a readiness for more complex senior role that demands cross-domain thinking? Whew. What do you think? I think that's a great question. I mean, I think there are a number of ways you can do that. And I don't think the resume is the only place. You can only expect your resume to do so much. I think that some of the answer to that is obviously like the interview and the cover letter, which is kind of where you're making your case. Um, But I do think that one thing you can do with your resume is like make really good use of those bullet points. So I think the question sort of hints at this, right? Like you've held different varied positions that when taken together suggest readiness, right? So like there are aspects that you did at each of these jobs that somehow qualify you to have this bigger, higher level position. And so Mm -hmm. I think you can sort of make the case in resume form, right? Like, you know, at this job, I did this one thing that's relevant. At this other job, I did this one thing that's relevant. And that Mm -hmm. then when the person's reviewing it, they see it all together and they're like, okay, like overall, this person has these different skills that they've worked on in these different capacities. Yeah, totally. And if you're looking for like, to move into, you know, a leadership role, then you emphasize the opportunities that you had for leadership, you know, whether inside these roles or outside, like if you did mentoring or other sort of leadership. But you made a great point that really the place to connect those dots is on your cover letter, because hopefully the person will will connect them on the resume. But if you, you know, the cover letter is your opportunity to explicitly kind of spell that out. Yeah. And I think showing leadership on a project level is one way to show that you can be a leader on a a bigger scale. Yeah, totally. All right. So I have to like, it's the moment we've all been waiting for, right? The length of the resume. So there's this old school of thought that your resume has to be one page, no matter what. Uh, It doesn't matter how many years you've been working. A resume should never be more than two pages. And of course, we opened this up as a LinkedIn poll and people did not agree. Uh, 37% said, no, it does not have to be one page. 35% said it depends on your experience level. Only 11% of people said that it has to be one page. Um, A fun aside, I debated this topic with our now CEO, Stephanie Mehta, Uh, several years ago on the podcast, she is firmly in the camp of your resume should be one page. And she obviously has a long and accomplished work history. And I was very flabbergasted that she was able to keep it to one page. And she, you know, made the point that as you get more experience, the, the jobs that you held a long time ago end up like you don't include a lot of details of those roles. Sometimes it's literally just, you know, I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal for five years. And that's all that's there because you've done so much more. And, and really what's the most relevant then is, is your most recent role. I 
have always found it difficult to keep it to one page. And I certainly don't think um, people, I think sometimes people try to keep it to one page with, by like making the font very small or, you know, other kind of tricks. Like, I think the most important thing is making it, you know, pleasing to the eye, easy to scan, you know, having good bold head headings of things, having it well organized. Um, and yeah, and editing smartly off the, you know, the things that you don't need. But um, AJ or Julia, do you have like a strong feeling on a one page versus not one page resume? I feel pretty strongly pro one page. Ah, If only because, uh, you know, obviously I think there should be flexibility. Every person is different. But one of the perks of a one page resume is you can create a bit of intrigue, right? Like I can imagine reading a resume where it's like, wow, this person's at all of these different great positions, I want to learn more. And sometimes that's a slightly more powerful way than over-explaining every experience you've ever had on a resume. Yeah, I think for me, it's a little bit like case-specific. You know, some of it I think is like industry norms, sure, but then it's also like how experienced you are. Um, I mean, I don't think if I were reviewing resumes, I would ever rule someone out either way. You know, <laughs> like if someone has yeah, a one yeah. and a half page one, like it's not a deal breaker, certainly. And to AJ's point, like, I absolutely don't want to see, like, every single tiny, like, little yes. responsibility you held at every single position. Like, there definitely yeah. can be sort of a editing down that happens, you know. And I think it's maybe, like, a good practice to try to fit it all on one page, you know, to go through that and see if you can kind of hone in on it and edit down, like, when you're writing your resume. But I think, you know, if at the end of the day you've been in this field for 20 years and you want to mention this and this, like, I don't think having it be one and a half pages is a huge deal. So, you know, not maybe not as a hard and fast rule, I think, as as other people have uh, led us. I mean, I think kind of as the like the general, you know, wisdom always led us to believe. So AJ, you're going to do the, the last kind of essential tip that we have, which is about covering up gaps on your resume. Yeah. You know, this is an issue that seems to be increasingly common for people, whether it's because of the pandemic where a lot of people ended up having a gap on their resume, or just because that as the labor market shifts and workers are changing jobs more frequently, or more likely to work in the freelance gig or consulting capacities, or just facing a really kind of hardcore at-will employment environment, we're more likely to have gaps on our resume than in the past. And in the past, these gaps could be really damning for a resume. But fortunately, it seems that employers are slightly more accepting and Yet it still creates this tension of, of how do we deal with it? I think there are ways you can maneuver around it, right? You can just include the dates or you can choose not to. You can include just the years. Most advice that I've seen out there has been to just be honest about whatever gap you may have on your resume and try and explain the things that you learned in between. But um, there definitely still is some tension out there as to whether or not you should include hard dates uh, for different roles. Um, what do you guys think? I definitely think include your dates of employment at each place, because I feel like if you don't, it looks like you're trying to lie or cover things up or be a little misleading. And it's incredibly easy to fact check. Like, just look at somebody's LinkedIn, look at somebody, you know, I mean, like finding out that, you know, the dates of employment is a really easy thing to find out. So you might as well be upfront about it. And and yeah, I think you're right that it's like, increasingly it can feel awkward but it's increasingly not as big of a deal you know there's lots of reasons to have gaps in your employment layoffs are obviously really common and not and most of the time not anything to do with the employee's performance mm -hmm. or you know taking time off for caregiving and i don't think that anybody or most people when they have a gap of employment 
literally do nothing in that time. I think there's usually something that you have done that you can, you know, as we were talking about earlier, transferable skills and special skills and volunteer experience and unpaid work. Like there are things that you have learned and putting those on the, on your resume. And again, another opportunity to address it in your cover letter, you know, like you might as well be upfront about it, put a positive, as much of a positive spin on it as possible and and not like dwell on it or be ashamed. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, you know, probably going to be a topic of conversation if you sit down for an interview. And I think that's good and normal. And I also think, frankly, like if you want to work at a place that just like doesn't understand that people have gaps in their resume sometimes, then like, do you actually want to work there? As much as obviously you want a job, it's also about trying to find a place that's going to be reasonable to work at. And I don't think any good manager should look at a gap on a resume and say like, that's disqualifying, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. Like that's, that's a red flag on, on the employee side of, of like, you don't want to work somewhere. If someone's like, oh, you had to take a year off to, to care for an, an ill relative. I don't want you to work here, you know, like yeah, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. And to be really explicit, I think that kind of behavior is a red flag for how an organization prioritizes DE&I work, right? It indicates that they don't show a lot of flexibility, but, but also we know that, right? Like, People who have children are more likely to have gaps, right? Women are more likely to have gaps on their resume. Mm-hmm. Um, people, right, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, right, who may need to take time off to care for a family member are more likely to have gaps. So um, I think you guys are right in that it's a pretty big red flag if that's really what they're going to stick on. Yeah. And I will say, you know, as somebody who I was laid off from a media job in the last recession and had little little gaps, but then did freelance work, like never, ever was it didn't did an employer you know think that was weird or had you know people are very understanding of it it's very common okay so we're going to wrap it up here again we could probably talk about resumes for a really long time but thank you everybody for joining us um as again there um we pulled a lot of these tips from a lot of articles that we have written um so we're going to share the links to those articles uh so thank you all for joining us thank you thanks everyone And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Do you have other questions on what to include on your resume? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. And don't forget to listen to our special four-part series, Ambition Diaries, in this feed. You can also head to fastcompany.com backslash ambition hyphen diaries for photos, interviews, and audio clips from all seven mothers and daughters. The New Way We Work was produced by Jasper Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Mm-hmm.